we just come back from the feast, celebrating the millennium, looking forward to the kingdom of God. So if you ever wanted, I ask you to consider this question. Have you ever wanted something so bad in your life, so bad that it hurt, that you could feel it? Something so bad. There are a few things in life that make us yearn so passionately that we can feel it. Olympic-level athletes or professional athletes can push their body to such extremes to the point of breaking, which often separates those who make it and those who don't. Often it's not talent, but it's those who are willing, who want it so bad, they will push themselves to the point of physical harm. Often it's desire, not talent. Sometimes people give up on these dreams simply because it takes too much effort. It's too, it's too much of hard work to get there. You consider elite level dancers like ballerinas whose feet are mangled because of their going up on point, permanently damaging their feet and their toes to achieve high level status. Love. Love can make us alter our decisions in life because there's some, we want something so bad, we will alter our course. What do you value in this life the most? For some, it is their marriage. For some, they, will, they have gone through so, so much hardship in their marriage, and quite often, it is the wife who's at home putting up with raising the children while the husband is out working, that we will not give up our marriage without a fight. Relationships. Life is precious, and there's not much people will do not to survive. When we consider our, our marit marital relationship, we do so in light of God's law, not giving up our marriage without a fight. That's one relationship that we don't give up without a fight. We've just come back from picturing the kingdom of God. And I'd like to us to start by turning to Matthew 11. Matthew chapter 11. We consider things that we want so badly that, that we can feel the passion inside, whether it's been a sport, a love, the faith. Think back, and I ask you to connect with something in your life that you've wanted so badly, you can feel it inside. You can feel it inside. Matthew chapter 11 is an interesting scripture. Assuredly, I say to you, verse 11, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And of course, that's, as an aside, is referring to the fact that even the, the least in the kingdom, which is a misnomer of sorts, is better than the greatest human being on earth. Making it into God's kingdom is such a goal that regardless of what you achieve in this life, making it into the kingdom is better than anything you could achieve in this life. But continuing with verse 12, and from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. In talking about the kingdom, Christ makes this very curious statement. The violent take the kingdom by force. So as we've just come out of the festival season, picturing another year of picturing the plan of God, starting way back in April with Passover, continuing through the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Pentecost, Trumpets, Atonement, and now concluding with the Feast of Tabernacles, and we're just settling back in after a week and a half of 
being finished with that festival. And thinking forward to the kingdom and also having in mind what the world will look like in a week's time. You want social media to blow up? Check social media out on Wednesday after everything is settled. It, I am sure it is going to blow up to starting Tuesday night with, with all that is out there. And, and watch the division that takes place. It's, it's so divided now. It's, it's scary to think what it could be like out there after Tuesday. But that's not our goal. Our mind, we just came back from picturing the kingdom of God. So as we look forward to another six months of life, and you live in a similar climate to where I live, it gets cold, it gets dark early, we're about to put the clocks back tonight, so the sun by 5 o'clock, 5.15 tomorrow, it's going to be dark, and it'll be dark till 7, 7.30 in the morning, it's going to be a long winter, we've got six months before we have another <coughs> annual Holy Day celebration, but we've just come back from looking forward to the millennial reign of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God. I have a question, and that question is, how badly do you want to be in God's kingdom? How badly do you want to be there? We consider what we talked about in the introduction of things that we feel so passionately that it hurts. What you have, what you have done in your lifetime that you have given to the point of pain, whether that be a sport, whether that be an educational pursuit, whether that be a love pursuit, whatever it is that you have done, there's something in your life that you, have, that you have wanted so badly it hurts, that you can feel it, that you passionately feel it. How badly, when you consider that, do you want the kingdom of God? Do you want it that badly? Do you want it so badly you can feel it, that you've come back from this feast and nothing's going to take it from you? Let's continue here, looking at this interesting scripture that we just read. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence. Let's look at that initial part. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence. From the days of John the Baptist. So we know that John the Baptist came to pave the way for Christ's first coming. Where he divested himself of his divinity, came as a human being, showed us that there was a way to live, died for us, and then was resurrected. This phrase, the kingdom suffers violence. Suffering violence, when you look up the, in Strong's, the Greek words, means to inflict force upon. To inflict force upon. So from the days of John the Baptist, and we'll look and see that it actually extends before John the Baptist, but especially since the time of John the Baptist, the kingdom has had force inflicted upon it. Because Satan has spent and will spend his entire existence as the God of this world trying to pry the kingdom from the hands of the saints. He has nothing else left to live for. He had eternity. He had the status of being an archangel, one of the chief cherubim, and he gave it back because he, wanted, he wasn't satisfied. So he gave it back. And now all he has, he has nothing to attain except to take our glory from us. That's, that's what he lives for. He has nothing to attain. So his job is to take the kingdom from the saints, from you personally. He wants to rip the kingdom out of your hands. How badly do you want that kingdom? How badly do you want that kingdom? Here we see Matthew here talking, penning the words of Christ, that the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. We know that from the days of John the Baptist, John came to introduce Jesus Christ and pave the way for him. And Christ came to bring us the, the kingdom in a, in, a, in a microcosm form. He showed us that we can have the kingdom now. Not, not ultimately, but we can live lives that depict the kingdom. This word violence means to use power to forcibly cease. So it's not just, it's not just violence as we think of a, a violent movie or, or a violent TV show, but this is 
using power to forcibly seize. That's what the Greek word biazo means. This is the word for violence, which if you study Strong's is 971 in the Greek concordance, biazo. And it means to use power to forcibly seize or to lay hold of something with positive aggressiveness. So we consider that the kingdom of heaven since the days of John the Baptist, and we're going, to, we're going to go in and look that it actually started occurring long before that, that the kingdom of heaven was, is being forcibly seized. There are, there are forces trying to forcibly seize the kingdom of heaven. And this word is only used twice in the New Testament. And we'll come back to that a little later. What I like to do, go, let's go to 1 Peter 5. And as you consider how badly you want this kingdom, and consider that this kingdom that you want so badly, we are told by Christ, has been suffering violence. Has been suffering violence. 1 Peter 5 verse 8 comes to mind. Well-known scripture. But it sort of sets the stage with where we're at because Satan hates man. Satan was the epitome of God's creation before man came along. We read that in Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. He was the epitome of the creation, what God created. And then man comes along, which was the real epitome of God's creation, the the beings that God was going to share his glory with and invite into the Godhead, into the God family, rather, and share his glory. And we see that, we read places like Psalms 1, which you don't have to turn over, that the angels were made to serve. So now we see Lucifer, who then became Satan, realizes that in his mind, he's gone from the epitome of creation to serving this other group of beings that are going to share in the glory of God. He hates us. He lost what he thought he had, which was the, being the epitome of creation. And we represent the inheritors to this kingdom to him. And he hates that. He's lost eternity. And he hates the fact that in your hand, you grasp eternity. You have in your hands eternal life. And he hates that. So when we look at 1 Peter 5 and we see, be sober and be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, and strengthen, and settle you. So there's an acknowledgement that we have an adversary. And Peter here himself is saying just what I said, that he, his modus operandi is looking for weak saints so he can snatch them and drag them down. Consider nature shows that you've seen. And you see packs of, of antelope or packs of of, uh, of gazelles in Africa, and you see the, 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 the cats or lions or tigers or leopards or whatever you see looking for the weak link and just being patient, being patient through the grasses and then finding the weak link and snatching them and pulling them down. That's what our adversary is looking for. He's looking for weakness. He's looking for someone who may not be as committed to the kingdom who's in a bit of a weak spot and wants to drag that, snatch that kingdom away from you. And how, what the saints, part of what we need to understand as being in this group of saints is that we may suffer as saints. We may, whether it's financially, health-wise, um, and we see, we see schools of thought coming this way where we will be forced to defend Christ and stand up for Jesus Christ. It's, it's, it's coming to, it's in Europe, it's in England, it's in France, it's in Belgium, we see that. There are little pockets coming our way, 
But we don't know where this, our society is going from a political perspective. And I know back where I'm from, in Canada, we're inviting other religions into our country. And we're giving them more rights than we have. And it won't be long, perhaps, before there's enough that they're in charge of the government. And they're all this freedom that we have to, to worship may be gone. It doesn't feel like it now. We drove in in a beautiful day. We just came back from the feast and celebrated a very beautiful, peaceful feast. It doesn't feel like it, but we can't forget that that could be on the horizon. And that's right in line with what we see Peter here writing. That Satan is out there looking for weakness. He doesn't want you to have the kingdom. You just came back from a beautiful celebration of the feast. And Satan doesn't want you to have that. So he's out there seeking whom he may devour. How badly do you want that kingdom? How badly do you want that? Is he going to rip that out of your hands? Or are you, with the power of God, through his Holy Spirit, are you going to hang on for dear life? And that story that I was trying to, to access was about this wife who'd been married for 20 years. And her husband didn't get it. And she was to the point of walking out until someone told her about God and told her that she needed to hang on for dear life. So she went through the process of going through marriage counseling and figuring out how to make her marriage last because as she sat there quietly one night, this was, what, this was her dream, was to have this marriage and have this lifelong marriage. And no one was going to take that from her, even her own husband, if they had got sort of separated on their, their thought processes. And she said, I simply had to hang on. That was all, I, the, the only thing I had to do was to hang on. And then once she had committed to hanging on, then the process took some time, it wasn't easy. But once she had committed to hanging on, and once she made that her goal, I will hang on for dear life, then they found a way back into a happy marriage. It took some time, a lot of counseling, but it took the commitment where she said simply to hang on. Just hang on. That's, that's all I've got. If all I can do is simply hang on, there's the desire that will help overcome this with the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's go to John 10 and look at, we're going to continue to look at the fact that Satan wants to snatch the kingdom out of our hands. I wish there was a better way to say it. I wish... I grew up in the church, and I grew up in a peaceful time, generally. We, obviously, you know, we've, the Church of God has had times of, of conflict, and I mean, that's all the way back through the pages of Scripture. I couldn't imagine the fact that there may be a time where I could be called on the carpet to defend my God. Life today isn't what life was back then. And I, I don't mean to be a, a negative Nelly, but there's, as we see the world changing, we need to take the time together to look at these things and acknowledge the fact that Satan wants to snatch the kingdom out of our hands. Let's go to John 10. Verse 7. Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep, and all who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door... And if anyone enters my, by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. There is no middle ground. I wish there was, but there is no middle ground. Christ came to offer us life and that we may, we may have that abundantly in his kingdom. The thief comes to Steal, kill, and destroy. There's God's way or there's Satan's way. And there, there is no middle ground. I, I wish there were, but there isn't. So here, we've got Jesus Christ offering us life abundantly. And we've got an adversary seeking to steal, kill, and destroy. If people ultimately do not choose Christ, ultimately, once they have been given their... Once they have know enough and have been given enough of an opportunity to be held accountable for their decision, if they do not choose Christ, there's only one other choice. That's the adversary. 
There, are, there isn't a third option. We choose God's way or we don't choose God's way. And that's here what Christ is talking about. There's a thief and there's my way. I'm here to give you life. The thief is here to take your life. The thief wants to snatch eternal life away from you, to steal, kill, and to destroy. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Verse 12. Here's a scripture that we must come to fully understand. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear but you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may be glorified together. So there's an acknowledgement that we may suffer. Don't know what that suffering means. There could be minor suffering. It could be major suffering. We don't know. But there's an acknowledgement that when we signed up for this, we agreed that, that that's, the, that's a possibility. But what we read here is that the spirit that we have been given to help us through, we, did not, we don't have it to fear. This spirit allows us to be at peace. When we read the book of Revelation, we don't have time to go there. But part of the when you read the introduction in chapter 1, the first few verses, it's being given to those who are of faith to show them the things that are going to come so that when they do come, we're okay. I, can, you know, I heard this was going to come. It's, it's bothersome. I mean, we are human beings. We don't like to have to go through this. We don't like to have to see our country crumble around us like we're seeing our, both of our countries crumble around us. The freedoms that we used to enjoy are disappearing. It's not fun. But when we read this, we should say, okay, no, it's kind of expected. It's kind of expected. That's, that's the peace of having God's Holy Spirit that allows us to deal with the suffering, deal with the pain, deal with the irritations in a way that befits our calling, that, that we knew this was coming. We're not called to fear. Why say this if we've got it in the bag? There's, there's that old adage, once saved, always saved. We are, not, we, are, we are called not to fear. We don't have it in the bag. We are heirs. We are inheritors. But we must stay true to the end and the time when that inheritance becomes a reality. We have the potential, but it's not locked up. And why that's important to understand is that's why Satan is doing his best to steal the kingdom from our hands because it's not locked up. We must hang on. We must grab hold of this more than you've wanted anything else in your life, more than that sport or that love or that dance or whatever it is in your life that you wanted so bad that when I asked that question, you thought back in your life to something you wanted so bad you could feel it. We must want this kingdom more than that. We must want this kingdom more than anything else we've wanted. Let's go back to Genesis 3 and see that this kingdom has been suffering violence from the beginning of recorded time. Revelation tells us that this plan of God has been in existence from the foundation of the world. So our adversary has been at work from the beginning, inflicting violence upon the kingdom. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat, nor shall you touch it or die, or lest you die. Then the spirit said to the woman something she'd never heard of before. She didn't hear this. She was taught 
that if you touch that tree, just the one, you'll die. Now she's being presented with something else. The serpent said to the one, you're not going to die. Where did you hear that? You're going to die? In fact, God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes were going to be open. You're not just not going to die. You will become more wise than you've ever been. Your eyes will be open, and you will be like him, knowing good and evil. Satan begins the process of trying to steal eternal life away from God's creation, right here. Eve knew, Adam and Eve both knew, you will live life eternal, just don't eat from that tree. Eat from everywhere else, just not that one tree. What does Satan do? First opportunity, not only aren't you going to die, you'll be like God. Wow, well, that's, what a different story. So who do I believe? Who do I believe? He is trying to take, at that moment in time, eternal life away from God's creation, away from mankind. Verse 15, let's go down to verse 14. God's first part of the punishment goes to Satan. Because you have done this, verse 14, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. And on your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. You may bruise his heel. You may, he may suffer temporarily. The kingdom of heaven may suffer violence. You shall bruise his heel. You may suffer. You may inflict suffering upon him temporarily. But ultimately, he will stomp on your head and will defeat you. That's God's promise. But notice right at the beginning, because you have done this, Sure, there's culpability on Adam and Eve's part. But God is saying, because you did this, you are, this is your punishment. Satan has a part in this because he is trying to steal the kingdom away from God's creation, from Adam and Eve. Verse 19. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, his punishment to man, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Death ended up being the result after God had hoped to give them life. God wanted to give them life. Go back and read chapter 2. He wanted to give them life. And because Satan got involved and inflicted violence upon eternal life, death was the result. That was not part of the plan. But death became the result because Satan got involved and took eternal life away from Adam and Eve. Job chapter 2. Job chapter 2. This is the second time Job gets involved, or Satan gets involved in Job's life. And it, we see the initial where Job loses his property and his children. Verse 2. The Lord said to Satan, chapter 2, from where do you come? Remember 1 Peter 5, verse 8, our adversaries walks about seeking whom he may devour. From where do you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back, on, back and forth on the earth. Just like that line that we see on the, the uh, nature shows. Walk back and forth, just seeing what he can find. So the Lord said to Satan, verse 3, points him over there. Have you considered my servant Job? Look over there. There's a target. Have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on earth. A blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. And still he holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. So God is calling Satan out here. Your mission in life was to destroy Job, and he didn't. He held on to, he held on to his goal and did not, deny, did not deny me. So Satan, in verse 4, answers the Lord and said, Skin for skin, 
Yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. Consider mankind today. Is there anything we won't do? And I mean this generally, not God's people, but just generally mankind. Is there anything that we won't do to hang on to this life, to hang on to our youth, to hang on to our beauty, to hang on to, to cheat death, to, to try whatever we can medically to stay alive? Is there anything we won't do to hang on to this life, this life? And Satan here is calling God out on that. You didn't, you didn't harm his life. Touch him. Make him suffer. He suffers, he'll be like everybody else, and he'll deny you. Verse 9. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Where has it your integrity got you? All it has got you, you've lost all of your possessions, you've lost all of your children, and now look at you. You're sick and full of disease. Where has that got you? Curse God and die. Here, Satan is using outside influences, those Job loves, to try to pull him down. Obviously, the, the loss of his, his wealth didn't do it. The loss of his children didn't do it. The, the, the infliction upon himself didn't do it. So here, the one he loves the most, Satan has got to, to try to get him to give this up, to curse God, to deny God And Job will not do it. Let's go to 1 Samuel 17. Satan has been at work, as we can see, from the beginning of time, trying to snatch eternal life away from God's people. He tried it with Adam and Eve. He's tried it with Job. Let's go to 1 Samuel 17. There may come a time... And it doesn't feel like it today. It doesn't. The beautiful drive, we stayed in Streetsboro last night, and rather than take the highway, we drove across the 303. The, the beautiful, uh, I, I had it memorized. I looked at what that nature forest was called, some Italian, Indian name, Suya Gohoya or Goya Harama, or I'm not sure what it was. <laughs> but it was beautiful. The fall colors are beautiful through the trees. It doesn't feel like we may be on the precipice of what we may be on the precipice of being. It doesn't feel like it. But make no mistake, when we read through what is coming before Christ comes, at some point we will be. Is that now? I don't know. But we must be prepared. We must be prepared for that. Because Satan's looking for your weak spot. He's looking for you to go, okay, I can't take this anymore. Okay, I give up. I give up. You got it. Just, I don't want the pain. I don't want the hurt. I don't want the harm. I've, I've had enough. He, he's looking for your weak spot. And you continue to be faithful to God and keep his feasts and keep his Sabbaths. The same group of faces I see every time I come down here. He wants you at some point to say, I surrender. I surrender. And we can't let that happen. So we must acknowledge that we may be put in a position to do that at some point. 1 Samuel 17. David rose early in the morning, verse 20 left the sheep with a keeper, and took the things and went as Jesse had commanded him. Jesse, you remember, gave him some food and some stuff. Go down, take this to your brothers, see how things are going down there. And he came to the camp as the army was going out to the fight and shouting for the battle. For Israel and the Philistines had drawn up in battle array, army against army. And David left his supplies in the hand of the supply keeper, ran to the army, and came and greeted his brothers. Then as he talked with them, there was the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, coming up from the armies of the Philistines. And he spoke according to the same words. So David heard them, and all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. So David's impressed with the army of Israel, and he goes down, and he can't believe the fear in the army of Israel. He's expecting his heroes to go down and to see his heroes, and he can't believe what he sees. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him or were dreadfully afraid. They were too afraid to stand up for God. So the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Have you seen him? Look at him. He's bigger than anyone else here. Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And it shall be that the man who kills him 
The king will enrich with great riches. He is so impressive, the king will say, you killed that guy, you'll have it made. You'll never pay taxes again. The king will give you whoever you want to marry. Imagine that. You'll get anything you want. Just if anybody has the courage to stand up to Goliath, you've got it made. Verse 28, verse 26. Then David spoke to the men who stood by him, saying, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David saw the bigger picture. He saw Goliath defying God. There was a man coming into his area and inflicting his belief system on the armies of Israel. And they caved. They caved. Goliath seems stronger than any god we serve. Uh, I, I've, we've, we've, we've lost focus here. We forget that we serve the God of Israel. This guy's scary. This guy is absolutely scary. And the people answered him in this manner, saying, So shall it be done for the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was arousing against David. Why have you come down here? This little runt of a little brother, you're down here embarrassing everybody. You haven't even fought in this fight, and now you're acting like you know everything. Why have you come down here? With whom have you left those few sheep? Dad only left you in charge of just a few sheep. How can you come down here and preach this stuff against, against us when all Dad trusted you with was our few little sheep off in the wilderness? I know your pride and the insolence of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? Is there not a cause? Will no one stand up against Goliath and defend the God of Israel? Is what David is saying here. Is there not a cause? Then he turned from him another and said the same thing, asking everybody that was there, is there not a cause? Do you not believe in this to stand up and take this on? Now when the words which David spoke were heard, they reported them to Saul, and he said for him, and David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him, your servant will go. If you guys won't do this, let me do it. I will go fight Goliath. I will go defend the God of Israel. And Saul said to David, you can't do that. You're a kid. Look at you. You're the smallest one here. And you've never been in battle before. He has been a man of valor from the... T he has been trained from his youth to be a soldier. He's been a man of war from his youth. Goliath's mission in life has been to be trained to be a soldier. You look after sheep, and you're the smallest guy here. David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep his father's sheep, and when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them just like the lion and just like the bear. Why? Seeing that he has defied the armies of the living God. Seeing that he has defied the armies of the living God. David looked around and said, is there not a cause? What do you believe in? You have given your life to this army, and yet you will not stand up to the one guy that's bigger than the rest of us. Why have you given your life to this? Is there not a cause? This, this phrase, is there not a cause, has been quoted time and again. Winston Churchill used it. Uh, John F. Kennedy used it. It, initi it initially was used back in the first century B.C. by Hillel the Elder. He was one of the folks that helped assemble the Talmud. And we hear it used often. If not me, who? And if not now, when? That's what David was saying. The time is now. He's looking around. There's Goliath trying to take down the armies of God, and no one else is standing up. And David has said, the time's now. The time is now. If not, if, if not me, I don't see anyone else. Will no one stand up? Is there not a cause? We need to acknowledge that at some point, we may be asked to stand up and defend our God. Be, we must be ready for that. We must be ready and not deny our God. Let's go to Matthew 4. So we see David, we see 
Job, we see Adam and Eve. Let's go to Christ. Three times, Satan tempted Christ himself to give up his eternal life and to follow him. Three times. Let's just look at the third time. In verse 8 of Matthew 4. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain, the third time, the third temptation, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. Because remember, Satan was cast down to this earth and temporarily is the God of this world. Satan knew that. So this world was given to him by Christ and his Father. And he said to him, All these things I will give you. This is within my purview. You cast me down here and you gave this to me. I will give it back to you if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Three times, Satan tempted Christ to give up his eternal life. Yet nothing, nothing was worth giving up his eternal life. How does Satan do this? Through distractions, through temptations, through comforts in this life. It's not going to be necessarily someone standing before you like we see happening over in Britain or France or some of these other places with a, a knife to your throat saying, defend Jesus Christ. I hope that's not the way it's going to be. But he can tempt us through distractions, through temptations, through comforts in this life. The lust of the eyes, the pride of life, and the lust of the flesh, that's how he gets to us. Because if we give in once, small, it'll be easy to give in next time. And it'll be easy to give in next time. And then we'll be presented with something, a discomfort in life, whatever that may be, we may choose to, you know what, I'll work on the Sabbath, or I will do this or do that, because I just, I, you know what, it's just too hard. This, this life that God called me to, it's too hard. So let me just give in a little bit over here, and then a little bit over here becomes a little, a little bit bigger, and a little bit bigger, and then we find ourselves in David's position. Is there not a cause? Is there not a cause that we have to stand up and defend our God. We see multiple examples of Satan actively working to take life away from the sons of God because that is his mission. You're part of that group of saints. So you're in the same position as Job, David, and Adam and Eve. You have eternal life in your grasp and that irritates our adversary to no end. Revelation chapter 12. Again, talking about the events that come before the return of Christ. We just came through about a month ago celebrating the Feast of Trumpets and picturing the return of Jesus Christ on that seventh and last trumpet. Verse 13. Now when the dragon saw, of chapter 12, Revelation, and when the dragon saw that he had been cast to earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for time, times, and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimonies of Jesus Christ." That is an unfortunate reality of the life that we have been called to. Maybe it won't be in our lifetime. Maybe it'll be in our children's or grandchildren's lifetime. But the reality of the situation is that our adversary makes war with the offspring of, of, of God. And those offspring are defined as those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimonies of Jesus Christ. And that is the faithful saints of God. And he is our adversary and he will make war with us. And when we study the book of Revelation, we see all of these events that take place before the return of Christ. The various seals, trumpets, all these things that occur that we don't have time to get into today. Let's go to Revelation 18, though.
verse 24, and then we'll lead into chapter 19. Because part of the beauty of knowing that this will happen at some point in the lifetimes of the saints, whether it's now or in the future, is that God gives us the whole picture so we know what we're dealing with. Verse 24, And in her was found the blood of prophets and saints and all who were slain on the earth. And then after these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of servants shed by her. And again they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever, and the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sat on the throne, saying, Amen and Hallelujah. Then a voice from the throne came, uh, came from the throne, saying, Praise God, all you his servants, and those who fear him, great and small. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in, the fine, in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. As we prepare ourselves to be this bride of Christ, and we find ourselves part, perhaps part and parcel of those who the adversary makes war with. What keeps us righteous is our actions. What do we do in the face of the adversary, in the face of what, what comes? Do we maintain our faith? Do we maintain our love for the brethren? And I don't mean the brethren of, of our organization, the brethren in the body of Christ. Do we love the brethren enough that we, would, that we see them as our brothers and sisters and we will help protect them and we will be together and we see them as part of the greater body? Do we continue to put on the mind of Christ, to, to put on the Beatitudes, all these things that we see in Scripture, that we've been preparing ourselves for years to become like, to put on the mind of God? We do this so that if we are asked to go through this, our decision has been made, and we simply hold on to the kingdom of God, and we don't give it up. We make those decisions now. We make those decisions early. In times of peace and in times of, of an easy life, so that when we are presented with whatever we may be presented with, we simply hold on and hold on for dear life. And it's an easy choice. And, we, and that becomes our cause. And we can look around at each other and say, is there not a cause? Yes, this is our cause, and we will hold on together. Our protection is the righteous acts of the saints. We maintain our good standing with God by doing what is right, never compromising, and God protects us. Revelation 3. Revelation 3. Talking about the specific letter to the church in Asia Minor, known as Philadelphia. Speed this along here a little bit. Verse 11, we'll cut into the context here a little bit. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. Hold fast so that no one takes your crown. What is your crown? Your crown is eternal life in the kingdom of God. So if God here is pleading with his people to hold on and not let anyone steal your crown, it's because there's a power out there trying to steal your crown. And it's important that we realize he doesn't want us to have that crown. And he's going to snatch it, for, try to snatch it from us. And we must hold on. That is why Philadelphia is called the faithful church. Matthew chapter 11, let's go back. Matthew chapter 11. There is the second part to the scripture that becomes important that we understand as we consider all of these things and we consider our future and we consider the society that is crumbling around us. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence, verse 12, we just read that. And the violent take it by force. The violent take it by force. Can Satan 
ultimately, at his will, wrestle the kingdom from God. Satan can't take the kingdom away from God. Obviously, that's a, an obvious no. So this part must refer to the antidote of suffering violence. The first part here reads, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. So the violent take it by force. That word violent is another type of, we, just, we read Biazzo 971, where it was a in force inflicted upon. This word violent, uh, the, uh, this word the violent take it by force is a different word. It's biastes, number 973. And it refers to positive assertiveness. And it's used, in the believe, in the, uh, it's used of the believer living in faith in guiding and empowering him to act forcefully. And it's used only once here. A forceful, a violent man, one who is eager in pursuit. So we consider the question that the kingdom of heaven has been suffering violence at the hands of, of our, because of the hands of our adversary, trying to steal the kingdom from God's people. The passionate, one, the, one, the ones who, this, the word violent, as we said, this positive assertiveness, the passionate, those who are passionate, grab it right back and take it with force. Satan, our adversary, has been trying to steal the kingdom from the saints. And those who hang on to their crown, those who are passionate, take it back by force. They hold on and they don't let it go. The antidote to the kingdom of heaven suffering violence is to be more passionate back and not let him take it from you with the power of the Holy Spirit within you, being able to guide you and help you continue in the righteous acts of the saints while you're going through whatever it is you're going through in this life, tells God, I want this so badly, I'm not going to let it go. You can do to me, the adversary can do to me what he wants. He can inflict financial hardship on me, health hardship, family hardship. I want this more than anything else. The antidote to the kingdom suffering violence is we take it right back. And we hold on, and we hold on for dear life, just like that lady we talked about who held on to her marriage for dear life. That takes perseverance. Matthew 24. Verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, and many will betray one another, and many will hate one another. This here is being written to God's people. So there may come a time when, when the kingdom of heaven suffers violence amongst us, and we will have a choice. We can be offended by whatever it is that is being inflicted upon you, whatever hardship is being inflicted upon you. Be offended that this was not the life you signed up for. We can betray one another in the body, and we can hate one another in the body. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many, and because, of lawless, because lawlessness will abound, because around us Satan's way will become so prevalent, the love of many in the faith may grow cold. That is those who, who value this life more than the next, that value the putting away of the hardship in this life in lieu of hanging on to the kingdom and not letting it go. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. He who values that kingdom and wants it more than anything else in this life, more than ease of this life, more than ease of finances, more than ease of health, more than ease of family relationships, I want that kingdom, and nothing in this life will tear that away from me. John 13, let's conclude with a few examples of what it means to hold on for dear life. John 13. John 13. Jesus here during the New Testament Passover, his last evening with his friends, his disciples, 
tells them that most assuredly, verse 21, one of you will betray me. And as they considered the conversation going back and forth, verse 25, then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? It is to he, Jesus answered, whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him, and Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. What you do, do quickly. Jesus acknowledged the fact that he would have to suffer. So what he said was, just get it over with. I value that life more than this. That is most important. So whatever it is you're going to do, go ahead. I can take it. I can take it. Matthew 26. These are examples that we cling to when we are faced with such decisions. Matthew 26. Verse 52. Just a few hours later, as his friends as his friends tried to defend him verse 50 but Jesus said to him friend why have you come then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him and suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear Jesus said to him put your sword in its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword do you not think that I can now pray to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels. That's not, but I was not called to this life so that this life wouldn't suffer. Christ knew he was going to suffer in this life. And his focus on the kingdom and making sure he maintained a perfect life so that we could then share in that glory and, part, and be, receive the, the gracious gift of his blood. I could, you know what? I could, right now, I could just call down 12 legions of angels and I could make this life easy. But that's not the point. How then could Scripture be fulfilled that it happens this way? He had his mind and focus on the kingdom and nothing was going to take that away from him. What you do, do quickly. And do you not know that I could call the protection of any angel I wanted and this would be snuffed out? But it is not about this life to him. Revelation 20. We'll finish in Revelation 20. This is one of our go-to scriptures at the feast. Verse 4, Revelation 20 and verse 4. I saw thrones, and they sat on them, Revelation 20, verse 4, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Christ and for the word of God. What a dream John had. As he's picturing the kingdom of God, all of a sudden, raised from the dead, he sees those who had to give their life for this cause. Those that gave up comforts of this life so that they would live eternally. And what, what did he see about them? What, what made them different? It was for their witness to Christ. Their faith in the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image. They had not given up hardship in this life to follow some other religious system that would make it easier. Maybe I'll find a better job, an easier job, an easier lifestyle if I follow that religious system rather than this one that God called me to. And had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And guess what? They lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Verse 6, blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. As saints of God, when we remain faithful to the end, we will have part in the first resurrection. And over such, the second death has no power. When we are raised in that first resurrection, we are raised into eternal life with our spirit bodies and our new names. And that second death, the one that Satan wants us to partake of, has no power over us has no power. And we shall be called the priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years and then ultimately eternally. Grasp the impact of what they did. Stayed faithful to the word of God. 
witnessed for Christ, they didn't, meaning they didn't deny him. If someone said, are you a believer of Christ? Absolutely I am. Absolutely I am. What you must do, do quickly. What you must do, do quickly. They had not worshipped a foreign system to make their life easier. Grasp the impact of what they did, what they endured, and which life they valued more. They gave up that life so that they could have eternal life, so that the second death would have no power. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This reward that we picture every year when we go through from Passover through to the Feast of Tabernacles is not an easy reward to achieve. This is a hard life. We, we, we are gifted by the grace of God to have our sins forgiven and to be part of this life. Then the hard work comes that we must remain faithful. And it is, we have not been called to an easy life. It takes years of hard work, trials, pain, health trials, financial trials, suffering, humility, patience, forgiveness, forbearance, inconvenience in this life. This is not an easy life. But if you value it, if you value the eternal life, nothing can snatch the kingdom away from you. Because the violent, when we use the word violent, we mean the passionate. Those who want the kingdom so badly, nobody can take it from you. They take the kingdom by force. So as you go through whatever life has for you in this next year, you take the kingdom by force. Don't let Satan take it away from you. You can hold on and hold on for dear life.